When somebody tells you the story of their life, they often talk about what some people call inflection points. If you were to share your story, your testimony, how you got from your birth to today, you would share a number of these moments where a choice was made, there were two paths that something could have gone in, and the choice that you made determined the path that you walked. These are choices like where you decided to move, where you decided to go to school, who you decided to marry, who you decided to be friends with, uh, when you decided to say yes, and when you decided to say no. Um, and most of our lives, in terms of the pivotal moments, they, they come down to inflection points. It's often that you don't know you're in an inflection point until you're looking backwards. If, if we knew we were in one of those, we'd probably make different decisions. Um, but that's what wisdom is all about. It's learning from experience. And an inflection point for me happened in 2006 when I met my wife. Looking back, I didn't know that it was going to be meeting my wife. It was just meeting Danny. And back then, she would tell you that uh, summarizing my life, my diet, she would say, hey, there were three staples in Scott's diet. There was iced coffee, energy drinks, and taquitos. Now, I think she's overstating her case a little bit. I think my dad was a little bit more balanced than that. Not a lot more balanced than that, but a little bit more balanced than that. Um, but, but she had a profound impact on me in a number of ways. And if you've been here over the last couple of weeks, I've shared that one of the places that uh, God did some work in my life, and he used my wife certainly to help, was that when we got married, I brought a significant amount of credit card debt into our relationship. Roughly my yearly income and my credit card debt was about the same. Now, I think that says more about how little I was making working for the church I was working for at the time than it did my credit cards, but that's a way to probably deflect from how bad the credit cards were. But when we got married, we made a number of choices to begin to get out of credit card debt, and one of those was just tightening down. Everywhere we looked, we worked to cut expenses, and that meant I switched from a smartphone to what we call the dumb phone, you know, a flip phone. Uh, we switched off the cable TV. When I got in a car accident and my car was totaled, we took all that cash and put it towards debt. We became a one-car family. We stopped taking elaborate vacations. We brought our lunches from home. We made our coffee at home. We, we cut all of our expenses. But we also realized we probably needed to increase our revenue. And so I went out and got a second job, and then even for a season, a, a third job. And in that season, we really asked ourselves every day, is this a want or is this a need? And over those two, two and a half years that we first were married, we were able to pay off almost $25,000 in credit card debt. And I will tell you, those were some hard days. Like once we paid it off, it was like, whoo, we did that. But in the middle, it was really, really hard. But what kept us going was the vision we had for what life might be like for us, for our kids, for the people that we wanted to impact if we didn't have that huge weight on our shoulders of credit card debt. And it was that vision and that possibility and the things that we wanted to do that kept us going. And I want to introduce you to a little bit of that this morning. So if, you're, if you have your Bible out, you're taking notes, I just encourage you just to set those down for a second. And I should encourage you to close your eyes. I asked you guys to close your eyes a couple weeks ago. A couple of you fell asleep. There's no shame in that. This won't be nearly that long. But I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to imagine that it is August 28th, 2024. It's two years in the future. And I want you to imagine that you feel financially free. 
that you feel financially secure, that you feel financially successful, that you feel good about the position that you're in. Okay? Now open your eyes. If I were meeting you two years from today and you were to look back over those two years, what would need to have happened during that period for you to feel happy with your progress? The top of your sheet, if you're taking notes, is a little section that says two years from now. I just want you to write down what came to mind while your eyes were closed or in answer to this question. Because many of us are going to make it to August 28th, 2024. And when you get there, what would have had to have happened between now and then for you to be satisfied with the progress you've made financially? What would it take for that vision you had when your eyes were closed to be reality? Now, here's some good news and some bad news. It's been said, not by me, but by somebody else, that we tend to overestimate what we can do in two years but we tend to underestimate what God can do in 10 years. And if you took me back to 2008, I I probably thought we would be out of credit card debt faster. But what God has done in the last 14 years, I couldn't have imagined. And that really is the heart behind this series. And and Jake spoke to this a little bit ago. We're talking about money in the month of August, and we're, we're trying to talk about the fact that many of us have struggled We've bought into lies, we've, we've begun to tell stories, and we've found ourselves in a place that is not at all where God intended us to be. And we've been treating this series a little bit like an iceberg. If you remember the story of the Titanic, or you've ever seen a picture of an iceberg, 90% of it is underwater. And that's where we've been the last two weeks. If you haven't been here, we'd encourage you to go online and watch, listen to those messages. We've been talking about the things that happen underneath the surface that influence how we manage and relate to our money. And this week, we're going to tackle that 10% above the surface. And, and this is really important, not only to us, but it's important to God. I mean, if you think about it, there are 42% of Jesus' parables that are about money. In your Bible, there are over 2,000 verses about money. Why is that? Why would Jesus tell almost half of his parables about money? And why would there literally be thousands of verses in the Bible about money? Is it that God has a shortage? Is God's 401k struggling? Does God need to go get a second and a third job? No, God wants our hearts and he knows the competition. And so if you're here and you're new to church or maybe you're not even somebody who would say that you're a person of faith, you're like, man, of course, the church is talking about money picked a great day to show up. I get the cynicism. I'm a recovering cynic myself. But here's what I want to tell you. Our desire is not to raise the amount of money that we take in every week. Our desire is to see people experience everything that God has for them when it comes to money, which is so much bigger than what happens here. And that's why we did this series. So here's the big idea. God wants us to flourish, and he has a plan for us to follow. God wants us to flourish, and he has a plan for us to follow. Now that word flourish happens at the beginning of the Bible with Adam and Eve when they're in the, in the garden, and God puts them there, and it's good. 
That word happens at the beginning of the Psalms where God describes the person who's flourishing because their life is rooted in him. And Jesus talks about flourishing in John 15 where he says, hey, I want to create abundant fruit through you. And if you'll remain connected through me, your life will be abundant. It will flourish. It will have fruit. That does not mean that you will be wealthy. It does not mean that you will be happy. It does not mean that you will always be healthy. That's the prosperity gospel. But I think we have pulled away from what God wants for us because we're afraid of ending up in the wrong place. And because of it, we've missed out. So if you have your Bible this morning, I want you to open up to the book of Luke chapter 16. We've been in Luke all throughout this series looking at teachings and stories that Jesus did involving money. If you're new to the Bible, Luke is one of four biographies of Jesus, his life and his teaching. Luke's in the section of the Bible called the New Testament towards the bath, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke was not an eyewitness to these events but he was a doctor. He was well-trained in research and interviewing people. And so he assembled the 24 chapters of his gospel by interviewing eyewitnesses. And in Luke 16, we have what may be one of the oddest parables that Jesus ever told. And if you have your Bible, or if you don't, I want to invite you to stand as we honor God's word this morning. You can follow along on the screen. Now Luke writes, Now Jesus said to the disciples, There was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. So the rich man called the manager in and asked, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can no longer be my manager. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. And don't go forward, Catherine. And I'm too ashamed to beg. This is part of the reason I believe the Bible is true. I don't hear people, I don't people like this. Maybe you do too. I'm, I'm too proud to beg. There's not enough there to dig. I'm in a bad spot. And the Bible is just so honest. He says, I know what I'll do so that when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he summoned each one of his master's debtors. How much do you owe my master? He asked the first one. A hundred measures of oil, he said. Take your invoice, sit down quickly, and write 50. Next, he asked another. How much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat, he said. Well, take your invoice, he told him, and write 80. The master, this is what's shocking, praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth, so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So if you have not been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with what is genuine? And if you've not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus, I pray that we would experience all that you have for us, especially when it comes to money. For those who are here and they haven't experienced flourishing in this area, I pray that their cynicism and their disappointment and their past 
wouldn't lead them into disbelief that you can do that in their life. You came to make us free. And we pray they would experience your freedom beginning today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Today, what I want to do as we walk through this text is I want to talk about three parts to God's simple approach to money. Now, when I wrote this header, I paused, and I almost didn't write it this way, because what I've found is when I tell people that the solution to something is simple, they make lots of assumptions about what the word simple means. And so there's a little section on your note that says caveat, and this is what I want to speak to here. When I say God's simple approach to money, I don't mean easy, because simple is not easy. Often the most difficult things in the world are simple. How do you lose weight? You, you go to the gym and you exercise. You, you eat more than you should if you have your, a big plate, and you burn more calories than you take in. That's simple, but it's really hard. Simple is not comfortable. Often the things that are the most simple are the most painful. And if you're a procrastinator, you know this. Sometimes you know exactly what to do, but you don't do it because it's hard. Simple doesn't mean clean. Sometimes the simplest things are often the most messy to live out. I mean, after all, God says that following him is simple. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Loving your neighbor is simple, but it's messy. It's hard to do. And then finally, simple isn't quick. Simple is often slow. So for those of you who are like, okay, Scott, it's just simple. That was for you. To remind you that simple doesn't always mean what we think it means. So here's the first part of God's simple plan. God owns everything. And we our managers. Everything, including our money, is not ours. It's God's, and we're his managers. Last year in 2021, I decided at the beginning of the year that I was going to have a new approach to reading the Bible. I read through the Bible the previous year chronologically in the order in which it happened. So I'm going to try something new. So I said, every month I'm going to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's 90 chapters. I did the math, divided by three, 30 days, 30 days, three chapters, 90 chapters. So I, I was going to do this 12 times. And confession time, I did it about four and a half. If I was playing baseball, Chris, I'd be in the Hall of Fame. Taking math class, I'd be taking math class again. Um, and so I, I did not finish it. But I did take away some lessons. And what I saw as I read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is there is a pattern to Jesus' stories about money. And in the one we just looked at today, and in almost all of them, there's an owner and there's a manager. There's a rich person and there's a steward and friends. If you're looking for yourself in the story, let me tell you, you're not the rich man. You're not the owner. That's God. See, all throughout the Bible, we are reminded that God owns everything. In Psalm 24, the writer of the psalm says, The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants, belong to the Lord. From the very beginning, God has claimed ownership over his creation. And if you have young kids or you've had young kids, you know that the first word a kid says is not yes. It's not no. 
It's often not dada or mama. It's mine. That's the first word a kid learns. But if you look at all of creation, whether you go to the Grand Canyon or the ocean or to the top of Thumb Butte or you go out on the Peavine, every part of creation is a spot over which God says, mine. He claims ownership of it all. And that leaves us not as owners, but as managers. The the old school biblical term is stewards. And often stewardship becomes just a term that you hear about when you're talking about money, but stewardship is much bigger than that. I love my friend John Putnam says, he says, stewardship is everything we do after we say yes to Jesus. When we give our lives to Jesus, when we trust him with our past, our present, and our future, every decision becomes an act of stewardship. And we have an opportunity to be accountable and take care of and manage the money, the time, the talent, the influence, the relationships, the opportunities that God gives us. And at the end of the day, we're accountable for it all. And so when it comes to this first principle that God owns everything and we are managers, there's an inflection point that we all come to. There's a, a turning point, a fork in the road. Either God owns everything and you serve him or money owns you and you serve money. That's, that's the inflection point. Either you recognize that everything is God's and you're merely a manager and you're serving him or you hold on to the idea, I would call it an illusion, that you own money and what you begin to discover is that actually money owns you and you serve it. And it has a stomach that is never satisfied. Now this seems simple, but I put it first because it's fundamental That if you don't get this, nothing else I talk about today is going to make sense. And if you don't get this, trying to do anything else won't work. This is the fundamental principle. A few years ago, a friend of mine, he really bought into this idea. And then his car got stolen. And I asked him, hey, how you doing? That's kind of a nerve-wracking thing. It's okay. It's not my car. It's God's car. God's car got stolen. God's going to figure out what to do with his car, you know? Um, and, and it was a bit of a joke. And it was a little bit cheesy, but it showed some level of distance between the person and his stuff. Because if you don't adopt that mindset, what happens is your stuff owns you. It becomes part of you. And when you lose it or it gets in danger, you're attached to that in an unhealthy way. So first and foremost, God owns everything and we are his managers. Number two, God wants us to love him and use money. God wants us to love him and use money because the alternative is very different. Many of us are well-versed and well-experienced in loving money and trying to use God when it comes to our money. And one of the worst offenders of this is the church. This is why I get nervous when I realize it's time to talk about money again. 
because the church has bungled, fumbled, and messed up teaching on money, especially in the last hundred years. And many people have um, real kind of hesitations, I'll say, when it comes to hearing the church talk about money, and they are well-founded. Because the church in many areas has begun to propagate a gospel that God created us and wants us to be healthy, wealthy, and happy. The only problem is the Son of God didn't get that memo. He wasn't wealthy. He died at 33, which even by ancient standards is young. And he wasn't always in happy situations. Just a, just a principle. If the theology you're adopting doesn't work for Jesus and the disciples, it probably doesn't work. And so in, in contrast to this, God wants us not to love money and use him to grow our wealth. He wants us to love him and then begin to use money. And this becomes the ground over which God fights for and the enemy fights for. John 10.10 says, A thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus says, I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. God doesn't want us to live in lack or languish. He wants us to live in abundance and flourish. But if the enemy can't steal and kill and destroy what God wants, he'll corrupt it. And we won't experience what God wants. We'll experience a corrupted version in the prosperity gospel. And this is why sometimes I think churches don't talk about money enough because we're afraid of being misconstrued. And what happens is we abandon territory to Satan who then is going to steal and kill and destroy. Rates of credit card debt are just as high in the church as they are outside of the church. Financial struggles are just as present in the church as they are outside of the church, often because we've given up territory. See, here's the thing. God doesn't want something from you. He wants something for you. He came so that you would have life and have it in abundance, so that you would flourish. And the enemy tells you and whispers to you that he wants something from you so you can't trust him. That's his way of stealing and killing and destroying what God wants, when instead God wants something for you, and it's not for you to upgrade your house every three years. It's not for you to continue to trade in that car for a new one every time the lease ends. It's for you to experience love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control in him that you will not find in loving money. And friends, we become like what we love. That's why God wants us to love him and use money because he knows that if we love money, we will become like what money represents. I was thinking about an illustration of this principle and the best example I have in terms of literature and film is this guy, Gollum. I mean, what did he call it? My... Now, we all judge Gollum when we watch The Lord of the Rings for, for giving his heart to something so vain and shallow. But many of us treat our money and our stuff the same way. It's our precious. 
It's the thing that if we feel a tight grip on it, we feel secure. And if we feel like we're losing it, we feel insecure. And that's why Jesus tells this crazy story about a dishonest manager. Because he says, this man shows you that, that you are to be shrewd with money and use money well. I mean, I've just never heard somebody held up in the church. Hey, we have this new elder. We have this new volunteer. We have this new pastor. And they're shrewd. Like, I've just never heard anybody introduced that way. But that's the title of the parable. The parable of the shrewd manager. We are to use money, but to do so in such a way that we don't love it. And that's where Jesus' teaching ends. He says, no servant can serve two masters. Either you hate one and love the other, or you're devoted to one and you despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot love both God and money. And so you either love God and you use money, or you love money and you end up trying to use God to that end. We become shaped by what we love. We either give ourselves fully to a loving God and our character begins to be shaped by him where we look like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness in the full list that we covered this summer. Or we give ourselves to loving money. And like Gollum, our character becomes shaped by greed and insecurity. Like your character is heading in a direction. Your character is heading to a destination. Every day you are looking more and more like what you love. And Jesus says, I want you to look like me. And that will not happen if you love money. Greed shows up in all sorts of ways. It doesn't always look like Scrooge McDuck, you know, jumping around in his wealth. It often looks like checking your balance incessantly. Every morning when you wake up, the first thing you check is that. Every night's the last thing you check. It's the first thing you check in the morning, and in the middle of the day. And that's not the life that Jesus came to give you. That's stealing, killing, and destroying what God came to give you. And then here's the third principle to God's simple plan. God's plan runs counter to our culture's plan. You've got to understand that God's plan runs counter to our culture's plan. And I brought some, some props today to help you see this. Our, our culture's plan is, is the, these three buckets. Living, saving, and giving. If you could think about all of your money, it fits in one of these three buckets. All of your spending in a given month, in a given year, it falls in living, saving, and giving. I'm just checking to make sure they're in the right order over here. Okay. That's, that's where all of our money goes. Now, here's the problem. Jarrett Stephen nails this. He says, we often go to God first with our financial problems, but last with our financial plans. Right? I mean, how many of us have cried out to God when we saw a shortage happening or coming? God, I need your help. God, how are we going to figure this out? God, what am I going to do? But often we turn to God last when we make our plans and we put ourselves on the road to those problems. 
Now, Scripture speaks a ton about these three buckets, living, saving, and giving. 1 Timothy 6 says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation and a trap and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. So beware when it comes to living that you don't long for riches to a degree that it traps you and destroys you. When it comes to savings, there's Proverbs 6, which says, Go to the ant, you slacker. The Bible's pretty harsh there, but okay. Observe its ways and become wise. Without leader, administrator, or ruler, it prepares its provisions in summer, and it gathers its food during the harvest. Why? The ant knows that winter always comes. There's always going to be a financial winter. There's one coming in the future for all of us. So be wise and prepare. Save. And then finally, Jesus says in Matthew 6, But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves don't break in and steal. Give in such a way that some of your wealth goes to a place that it can't be taken away. Now, here's the problem. Here's the problem with with this setup. Most of us, when it comes to our money, and this is kind of going to be our money for today, we start out with living, and, and we begin to dump... I mean, a lot of our resources here, because, I mean, living's expensive. It's gotten more expensive over the last few years. Gas, bacon, you know, property taxes, you know, the really important things in life. And so we dump all of our stuff into living. And then maybe there's a little bit more we got to have expenses, but I probably should save something. I mean, retirement's coming sooner than I thought. And so we start dumping into savings. And then with what's left, we toss a little bit into giving. And that's our pattern. That's the world's pattern. Spend on yourself. Oh, pause. Make sure you save something. And if there's any dregs at the bottom, then you give that away. And this is why the, the, the lie that when you make more, you'll give more is a lie study was done about eight years ago, and it found that by percentage, the people who give the most away make less than $36,000 a year. And as you get over $36,000 a year, the percentage goes down. Now, I know, like, man, I, I give more money away than I used to. Yeah, because you make more money. You give more in amount away, but you give more away in percentage. Because as you continue to, to grow in your income, often what happens is you grow your lifestyle. You grow your comfort level. You upgrade. You get the things you've been wanting to and seeing other people have for so long. And you continue. And you make more money. And this is a temptation we all struggle with. Just because I'm up here doesn't mean I'm immune. We tell ourselves, man, I, I would give more if God would just give me more. Let me ask you a question. If you're still in your working years, I want you to imagine your boss. 
If you're retired, I want you to imagine your financial manager. I want you to imagine the person who's most influential over your money comes to you and says, hey, you're going to get 15 to 20% less. We're not firing you, thank God, but you're going to get a salary cut. Manager says, hey, the market is headed this way. I can kind of see it coming. For you to have enough, you're going to have to cut your expenses by 15 to 20%. Could you do it? Almost all of us could. Now, here's the thing. What if you didn't wait for that bad news to come? What if you chose to adopt that mindset now? That 15 to 20% is more than enough for both of these two buckets. See, friends, you are capable of more than you can imagine. You're capable of more than you can imagine. I paid off more credit card debt in two years than I made in annual income two years before that. I was capable of more than I can imagine, and you are too. If you think back to the past, you remember when you got married and you guys had bologna sandwiches and you thought that was the greatest thing ever? Remember when you lived in that postage stamp apartment and you were super happy and now your master bedroom could fit in that apartment? You're capable of more than you can imagine. And you begin to do that when you make one subtle shift. That's the difference between the world's plan and God's plan. Same buckets, just different order. Instead of starting with living, you start with giving. Now, I'm not here to have a fight over tithing and whether the 10% principle is still active. I will just tell you, giving in the Bible is always first. It's never last. From Cain and Abel in the beginning, to Abraham and Melchizedek, to David, to the people of Macedonia in 1 Corinthians, giving is always first. Then, saving. Because as Proverbs 6 says, the ant is the wise one. Proverbs also says the wise one is the one who saves and the foolish is the one who eats all he has. Winter is always coming. And then there's a ton left for lifestyle. I'm not saying that everybody needs to be a miser to drive a 25-year-old Mazda and, and to never go on a vacation. But what I'm saying is that if you start here, you never get here. But if you start here, there ends up plenty here. And God's plan is the pathway to that vision you have at the top of your sheet. That vision where you feel financially free, successful, and at peace, it does not come when you go like this. It does come when you go like this. When my wife and I were, were paying off our debt, uh, there was a man who came in and, and helped us out of a huge financial bind. He gave us an interest-free personal loan to deal with a financial crisis. And when we paid that debt off, we promised ourselves that we would start setting aside money every month to do the same thing for others. In the beginning, we had pennies to put in that account. 
But God's plan is what's led us to the place where now, in addition to giving money to Cornerstone and other great causes, we have the resources to help other people where we were. And God's plan was the pathway to that vision. And I think God has visions and plans for you financially that go beyond your imagination. And the way that you get to that, the way that you get to flourishing is you follow this plan. Giving, then saving, and then living. I've got some practices for you this morning on the back of your handout. The first one is this. I want to invite you to quit claiming ownership and start embracing stewardship. I want you to remove the word mine from your financial vocabulary. And if you struggle with this and you're like, Scott, this is really hard for me. I have a tool for you. It's on our website, prescottcornerstone.com resources. There's a download there called a quit claim deed. Now I will tell you as the husband of a lawyer, this will not stand up in court. It's not been vetted by the state of Arizona, but it is a simple document for you to practice this. You get this document this week, you print it out, and you write down everything that you own. And then you write down that you are transferring ownership from yourself to God. This simple little practice I have seen unlock the pattern of greed in the hearts of people. Quit claiming ownership, start embracing stewardship. Number two, develop a plan for God's money. Again, in a church the size of Cornerstone, across an age range, I don't know what your next step is in that plan, but I've got some resources for you on the same page. Prescottcornerstone.com slash resources. We've got a debt tracker and payoff plan. Did you know that 90% of Americans don't know how much they owe and 95% of Americans don't know their payoff date for their debt? That's why you're so hopeless. It's an unknown number that's gonna be paid off in an unnamed time. So this tool will help identify those payoff dates and then create a plan to pay it off. There's a, a budget plan. Let me just tell you what a budget is. It is deciding in advance how you're going to spend your money as opposed to trying to chase your money down to pay off the things. That doesn't have to be a straight jacket. It just means you, you kind of look on paper and say, where should my money be going? And then finally, there's a spending tracker. And if you're really in a rough place financially, what this is, is you adopt 7, 14, 30 days, and you write down everything you spend. Everything. In my experience and others' experiences, your mind will be blown by how much you're spending on things. Because you add it up over 30 days, and the math just gets crazy. So I don't know what your next step is, but we've got resources to help you build a plan. Number three, ask for help where you need it. The lie that our enemy tells us because he wants to kill and steal and destroy is that you can't tell anybody the spot you're in, which guarantees you'll stay there. And part of the reason that I've shared so transparently about my own struggles is not because I'm not seeing my therapist. Trust me, I am. Um, that's, that's in my budget line items. It's so you will feel the freedom to share your struggles too. And so if you're in a rough spot financially, I'm going to push on you today and I'm going to ask you to email me. There are some people in this church that are wiser than me with money who said when we started this that they were willing to meet with people who were struggling. You're like, Scott, if I ask for help, that's weakness. No, that's courage. Asking for help is not weakness. It's courage. 
It's saying, I care less about what people think of me, and I care more about being free. So you email me, and I'll get you connected. And then number four, start practicing generosity today. Some of you, when you saw this uh, illustration right here, you're like, Scott, this is great, but what it takes for me to do right here is more than 100% of my money. I can't be generous. Let me tell you, generosity is an opportunity. It is not an obligation. It is an opportunity for you to watch God work in a miraculous way. When my wife and I were in that place where we were buried deep in debt when we got married, we were not giving any money away. So if we started with 10%, we would have been telling Visa and MasterCard, you have to wait. So we started giving like 1%. And then the next year, I gave more like 2%. It was a long time till we got back to 10%. But let me tell you, that first step of being generous and being grateful for what we had, it broke the power of greed. So if you're not giving anything to Cornerstone and you're like, Scott, I couldn't give 10% or more than that, fine. Pick something. Pick $5. Pick 1% and watch what God does. You don't give because you have the capacity to give. You give because you trust that if you give what God is calling you to give, he will take care of the rest. And as you give thanks and you give, what you watch is you watch that God breaks the grip of greed in your heart. Because that's what I want. I don't want you to give more. I want you to be more free. I don't want you to give more. I want you to experience flourishing. That's what this has been about. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for your work in our lives. We thank you for the teaching that your scriptures give us. And we thank you for the hope that you offer us, that where we are today, if surrendered to you, is not the place we will always be. You don't promise us we'll be wealthy. You don't promise us that we'll always be healthy. You don't promise us that we'll always feel happy. But you promise us that you will never leave us alone. You promise us that your love will never be defeated. You promise us that nothing can separate us from you. So I pray that you would be very near to those in this room today who have experienced the enemy killing, stealing, and destroying all that you came to give. I pray that you would begin to break the chains that have bound those who are wound up and bound up financially. And I pray that the furthest thing from our hearts would be shame. Because you say there is no condemnation for those who are in you. You are not the source of shame. You are the source of the goodness that we experience even right now. And so we give you thanks. And I pray in advance for what you're going to do and the visions that you're going to birth and fulfill in our midst. In your name we pray. Amen.